Good morning, Royal Family of God. Happy New Year to you all. We made it. Call to worship is taken from Psalms 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me, and behold, you therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. At evening they return, they growl like a dog. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you, his strength. For God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power. And bring them down, O Lord, your sh- our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath, consume them, that they may not, and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. And at the evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they're not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. Wow. You can see the righteous indignation sprinkled throughout the Psalms. Take care of my enemies. They're like dogs. They growl. They're hungry, looking for something to consume. We just made it through a new year, uh, through the year 2022. And I'm confident that we're going to make it through 2023. But before we do, we need to be ready for that. And we do this, of course, through the preparation that comes only through the inculcation of God's Word on a consistent basis, which is what National Capital Bible Church champions. So for now, before we sing our first song, let's take a moment of silence and prepare ourselves gives us an opportunity to relax and take our minds off of the things of the world, our responsibilities, not that they're not important, but because God is far more important. So let's pause for a moment of silence 
and recovered the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit as per 1 John 1 9 which says that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness let's pause for a moment of silence and then I'll open in prayer Father, just like the psalmist, we sometimes have challenges, we have enemies, but Lord, regardless of the opposition or the challenges, we know that you are there for us. And we can praise you as we have just read, just like the psalmist said. We can praise you and know that you will be there for us regardless of what we face. And as we embark on a new year, I pray for each and every member of this church that we would shore up together, lock shields, and make 2023 the best year ever by advancing the cause of Christ. But before we can do that, Lord, we recognize our shortcomings. And so thank you for giving us the opportunity to utilize 1 John 1.9 in the privacy of our hearts, knowing full well that you will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness should we need it. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to lift our voices to Thee. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'll ask the deacons to dispense of the elements. We're going to partake in communion this morning. But before we do, let's open with prayer. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to partake in communion as a church family. We recognize the significance of this because it commemorates your death and more importantly, your resurrection. So Father, as we remember this event that had forever changed the trajectory of our of mankind, by giving us the potential of having life by believing in your Son. Help us to see the significance of this, that we might live lives that would be honoring and glorifying to thee. We ask and pray all these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he... It had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we gather together, it's an, it's an opportunity to remember what he has done for us. To recognize that because of his life, we have life everlasting. Unfortunately, we're living in a time where people mock the reality of Jesus Christ. We've just celebrated the birth of Christ on the 25th of December. And I'm confident that we, when we gathered, we being believers in Christ, we recognize that that was the highlight The birth of Christ was one of the bookends. It was the highlight of when God himself entered into the earth in the form of man to become the God-man that he might be able to appease the wrath of God. 
by paying the sin debt and being the propitiation. But again, we're living in a day and age where that is mocked, ridiculed, but we're not surprised as per 1 Corinthians 1.18, which says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, which is why we put focus, heavy focus and emphasis on the Word of God. Jesus said, Take, eat, this is my body which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember him. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The second time, he emphasized the importance of remembering him. Let us partake. Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to remember what you have done. Your word reminds us to do this, and as often as we do this, we do this in remembrance of you. And Father, this is why we recognize the communion table. It gives us the opportunity to refocus and to recognize that there is hope. In a day and age where it appears that there is none. But because of what you had accomplished on the cross, we're reminded that your son has given himself that we might have life. And symbolically, we've just partaken of the wafer and the juice, which symbolizes his body and blood broken for us. Thank you, Father, for loving us, and we'll see some more details during our message today of the impact of what you had truly accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask and pray all of these things through Christ's matchless name. Amen. Wonderful singing. Wonderful. Before we get into the message, as customary, I'd like to share some verses that are the essence of salvation. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Again, Happy New Year to you all. 
And we are going to continue to trek through phase two on our series basics, and we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Well, as much as we can. So, without further ado, we're going to let me show you what you'll recall what uh, Dr. Dwight Pentecost said. Professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, Bible Exposition, said the following in his book. The subject of discipleship is frequently discussed today. That means we talk about it quite a bit. Discipleship. We often hear of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples, right? And he says, men are called to become disciples without any definition of the concept and without any clarification of the requirements the Lord makes for those who are His disciples. Discipleship is frequently equated with salvation and often erroneously made a condition for becoming a Christian. Thus many are confused about their relationship to Jesus Christ. Austin, I thought you were a true believer. You're supposed to carry your cross. If you don't take yourself off the seat and let Jesus sit on the chair, you're not truly saved. That's what a lot of people are teaching today. And that's why I think Dwight Pentecost hit the nail on the head when he said it's often equated with salvation. What is? Discipleship. The rules for discipleship must never be blurred with salvation. And yet, I think sometimes it goes right beneath, right underneath our noses and we sometimes don't realize that sometimes we're guilty of the same errors. So, we're going to go through some verses here to amplify the significance of discipleship while at the same time contrasting, if we have enough time, um, Looking at a chart, I added some more things on the chart regarding discipleship and the difference between salvation and discipleship. So you'll recall in Matthew 10.37, very strong words, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So the point is, is that if followers of Christ are forced to choose between family and Christ, they must choose Christ. The maltreatment you may be facing, even among family, must be met with committed discipleship. If not, you're immediately disqualified as a disciple. I didn't say you're no longer saved, but you're disqualified as a disciple. Look closely at Matthew 10.37. If you love your father, mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Another verse that we looked at two weeks ago, you'll recall. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And follow me. So, you'll recall I pointed out that there are three explicit instructions on discipleship in this one verse. Notice. Deny himself. 
Pick up the cross and follow me. So the idea is anyone desiring to follow him must deny himself. That means not to think about his own good. Take up his cross daily, which is a willingness to follow Christ to death if necessary. And recognize the trouble related with one's chosen way of life. There could be turmoil and challenges as a follower or a disciple of Christ. You can see that Jesus warned that following him would be would necessitate suffering and hardship. We read in Luke 14:26. Again, similar to the first verse that we saw in Matthew. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So the phrase to hate one's family and his life refers to a cognizant and a deliberate idea of placing all in second place to Jesus Christ. You must be aware of that. He must be preeminent above all. Now, this is a hyperbole. It doesn't mean that you're to literally hate your father, mother, brother, sister, but you cannot love them first before Christ. Christ must be first in order to qualify as a disciple. Notice, Jesus wasn't saying hatred to hate them or to encourage neglect or inflict harm on oneself or others, this is a hyperbole. The point here is that Jesus deserves precedence over every other relationship. If you must choose between Jesus and a family member, Jesus should take priority. Here's a new passage that we haven't seen yet. This is showing us how to exercise our volition. Discipleship requires planning and thought, which is different from salvation, which does not require volition. Let me repeat. Salvation does not require volition in the same sense as discipleship does. Because salvation is contingent upon believing in Christ, being persuaded about Jesus Christ. Do you remember I gave the analogy of Theron, can you come up? I used this example before, right? But I think I used Marty last time. I'm Afro American and he's Filipino. Do you believe that? Think for a moment. You're probably not really struggling. Are you having a hard time believing that I'm Filipino and he's Afro-American? Probably not, right? It doesn't require volition because it's an instantaneous 
response to facts that are true. I'm Filipino. I'm five foot three. Are you praying about it? Are you thinking hard that you know what? He's probably six, more like six nine. <laughs> no. Why? Because to believe in something means to be persuaded that it's true. Do you believe that I'm five three? I'm five three. You should be able to look at me and say, he's approximately six foot, five three. My point, is, the reason why I stress this is because believing in Jesus is just being persuaded in who he is. You take the eight signs in the Gospel of John and you see that he raised Jesus, he raised Lazarus from the dead, he healed from a distance, he fed 5,000, and in the end you look at the purpose statement of John itself. These things, the things referring to the signs, were written that you may believe in the name of Jesus. These things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have life in His name. That's the force of God, the Gospel of John. And there's other things that we're going to look at. But here I'm, I'm wanting you to see that discipleship requires thought, volition. Look what it says here. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my... What? Disciple. So if you, can, you don't bear the cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Then he goes on to say, but, verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and what? Count the cost. Count the cost. Whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. You see that? It wasn't that discipleship was hard in the beginning. It's easy. Thousands would follow him. Remember? And we're going to see passages that show this and demonstrate this. Thousands of people followed Jesus. They were called his disciples. But Jesus, now when we're zooming in in specific passages, you're going to see that the essence of discipleship requires a great deal of sacrifice and commitment. And it's a volitional act to follow him, to count the cost ahead of time. So he says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he says, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first Count the cost, whether he has enough to what? Finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him. So as I said, as I said before, it's not that discipleship was hard in the beginning. The problem was that it was difficult to sustain or complete to the very end. This is the sense that we get here in 27 through 29, after his words about hating the family and even oneself. 
Did you catch that in the previous verse? Let me back up just here. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, and his own life. His own life. Right there in 26. So you, the cost of discipleship is high. So the idea is it's a volitional act. Whoever does not bear his cross, come after me. That's something we need to think about. Meaning that this is a life similar to Christ which involves facing rejection, loneliness, and possibly death. It's the idea of having a willingness to follow Christ to death if necessary and to recognize the trouble related with one's chosen way of life. It's not easy to be a disciple. It costs something. You all came here and you had to utilize a vehicle, I would think, right? It costs something. How much is gas now? $15 a gallon? It's a sacrifice. And he continues, well, let me just take it here to Luke 14, 27 to 28 and highlight some things here in orange now so we can see. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you Intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whenever he has enough to finish it. Whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him. This was a, there was a cost involved <clears throat> in becoming his disciple. Just as there was a cost involved in building a tower. No sensible believer or builder would start to erect a tower without calculating whether or not he could afford to see it through to completion. Failure to make this underpinning estimate could lead to embarrassment later on. Is it possible for a disciple to drop out of the race? Is it possible for a disciple to stop following? It is. How about a believer? Is there a difference between a believer and a disciple? Oh, that's that question that we raised a few weeks ago, huh? I'm going to show you what the scripture has to say about the two. I'm going to anchor the rest of this class in the book of John. John chapter 6. In fact, let me just read John 6 from the scriptures before I flash the the PowerPoints because the PowerPoint is going to just highlight some things that I want us to zoom in on. So John chapter 6, verse 1 says the following. After these things... <clears throat> J- 
Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples, plural. Now the the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that we may, that these may eat? I want you to notice right away the hospitality of Jesus. You know, as a church family, we have this opportunity to be hospitable towards each other. And we do this sometimes in, in the way of giving and exchanging of food. And to show you how much we're uh, a firm believer in that, my wife brought uh, a dish for you all called the cassava cake. This is part of the fellowship that we're going to partake in afterwards. But you'll see that Christian love in the Bible is often linked with food. The exchanging of food the mingling together with brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I know some of you have been reared in a doctrinal church, as have I. And we talk about love, but we understand it in our mind as impersonal and personal. Right? What's impersonal love? Anyone? Anyone? What's the difference between impersonal love and personal love? Bill? Unconditional? Okay. Based on who you are, not them. Very good. How about Christian love towards the brethren? Is that personal or impersonal? Both. What's the difference when we say both? That's right. Um, Scott, can you read John thirteen thirty four? The new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even if I have loved you, that you also love one another. Okay, so this is called a new commandment. And who who issued that? Who said who said that? Jesus Christ. A new commandment. Is that optional? Is that something we can just choose to do? No, it's mandated. It's one of the 144 commands in the New Testament. To love one another as I have loved you. That's something we must be exercising on a regular basis. Which is why I know you've seen... As I've become interim here, I'm a little bit more gregarious and in some ways affectionate. I'll give you guys a hug or a side hug or something along those lines. You know, that comes natural for us as Filipinos because by nature we're just very caring and affectionate. But I do see that come through loud and clear from the Word, from the Scripture. Christian love, biblical love, where it's personal. Heavy emphasis on personal love, not impersonal, where you're not 
loving the unlovable because you don't know them. You're loving them because you do know them. And it, it is also contingent upon the virtue that's stored up inside you. Because if they're being snotty, that's when impersonal love comes out. But if they're not, if it's just something that you're just seeing each other in church, you should be able to think of each other and say, hey, how was your week? How was your day? You know what? I thought about you during the week. I was wondering, are you okay? Were, were you feeling a little under the weather this week? We should be thinking out for each other, looking out for each other. Some of you had uh, celebrated New Year's, Christmas Eve, um, with family and friends. Some of you may have been all by yourself. That should never be the case when you have a family here like this. We should be automatically thinking, oh, what's she doing? What's he doing? Maybe they don't have anything to do. Let's invite him. Let's invite her. That's part of the family of God. That's part of the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you, as Jesus had loved them. And he's displayed that by himself washing the feet of his disciples, meaning doing the menial jobs, menial services. He took a towel, put wrapped it around him, got on his knees and bathed their feet. That was instructional. And he says, look, this is what I want you to do as well. I'm leaving you an example. Look out for each other. Forgive one another. Love one another as I am loving you. Do the same. Then what happens shortly afterwards? He's gone. Rises on the third day and he's gone. Seated at the right hand of the Father. And his disciples, through the through the movement of God, the Holy Spirit, recognize, wow, that's what our Master taught us. To love one another. Because now the pressure was on. Were it not for the inculcation of the truth of God's Word in the lives of the twelve and the many that we're going to see in just a moment, we would not have what we have today. So, notice, let's see. What verse did I stop on? Anybody know? I got sidetracked. Side, John 6. Okay. Oh, yeah. My point was is that uh, fellowship is with Jesus and the multitudes was often with food. Even though there were many with him, what did he do? He made sure they were fed. It's always interesting, uh, before Jesus would do any of his miracles, or while he was doing it, he was feeding them as well. Because that's a great way to bring people together. So verse 4 says, The Passover was a feast of the Jews, and it was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, "What shall, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? The multitude." But this he knew, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. 
So here's a test coming from Jesus Christ himself. He was testing Philip. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what what are they among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There you go. When he says that, make the people sit down, you know something's about to happen. Now there was so much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number of about 5,000. Now, when it says 5,000, because this was a uh, patriarchal society during this time, it was the counting of the men only. But I would venture to say, and most commentators would say, that there were also wives and children. So easily we can say fifteen to 20,000, not 5,000. Okay, I want you to imagine 15,000, not 5,000. Only the men were counted here. He said, Jesus took the loaves. Let's see, make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in place, so the men uh, sat down in the number of about 5,000, really about 20, 20, possibly 30,000. And Jesus, verse 11, took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. Notice the delegation here from the Lord himself to his disciples. He gave thanks. Gave thanks to the Father and distributed them to who? The disciples. It went from Jesus, then to the disciples, and then to the, the disciples to those sitting down. Who were sitting down? 20,000. And likewise of the fish. He gave thanks for the fish as much as they wanted. So notice, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is what? Lost. He didn't believe in wasting food. He fed twenty to thirty thousand as much as they wanted with how many loaves of bread and how many fish? Five barley loaves, two fish. And there were about twenty to thirty thousand people there. And it said in verse eleven. He took the loaves and when he had given thanks, his disciples gave thanks. He, He distributed them to his disciples, the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. You want more, Vanessa? Come in, come up here. He kept giving, distributing. Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over of those who had eaten. The twenty thousand left fragments 
that were collected in 12 baskets, the leftovers. How does that happen? That's what happens when you have the Son of God on your side. He could take what little you have and multiply it. These are small examples of His omnipotence. Giving thanks to the Father is the prerequisite. And then when He distributed it to His disciples, I think this is the passage where this is a, what's called a imperfective aspect. Where... It's an ongoing giving, distributing. So when it says in verse 11, He took the loaves and when He had given thanks, He distributed them. When He was distributing them, it kept flowing. He kept giving. That's where the magic was happening. The Son of God gave thanks to the Father and He distributed that aspect, that imperfective aspect, suggests that it's, it's constant, continuously coming and coming and coming and coming as it's leaving the hands of Jesus. And He's delegating it to His disciples who then gave it to the how many? 20,000. And you think you have problems? You can give that to the Lord. He can do this for you. 2023, it's nothing for someone who can do this. We just have to reorient ourselves and get with God's Word. We have to see what's there and recognize, you know what? We're not coming in vain. We assemble together because we know we're going to hear something that is going to give us new life and vigor as we step out the doors of this church so that we can march onward and to tell people about Christ Jesus. Let me continue. This It gets even better. They gathered the remains up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. You would think that the leftovers would be able to fit in the twelve baskets. But they gathered up the fragments and put it in the twelve baskets. Then those men, when they had seen the sign, verse 14, very important, this is uh, sign number five in the Gospel of John. There are eight signs. This is sign number five. These men, when they had seen the signs that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by by himself, to be alone by himself. Now, when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum and when it had already and it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing verse 19 John 6 so when they had rowed about 3 or 4 miles they saw Jesus walking in the sea and drawing near to the boat and they were afraid but he said to them it is i do not be afraid 
Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So miraculously, notice verse 21, immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Verse 25, And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs from verse 2, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What is he saying? You're not, sir, you're not seeking after me because you saw the signs of what I've done. You're just coming after me because your bellies were filled. I fed you. You're more impressed with that than the actual sign itself. That's verse 26. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So you have these multitudes of people following and going after Christ for different reasons. So now I'm going to just go back to the PowerPoint slides and see if we can at least make sense of this. Now, John 6, 2, 3. So we saw the great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. That's the sign there. They were uh, signs that were done on those who were diseased. Jesus went up the mountain and there he sat with who? His disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. How many did we say there were were here? 20,000, 20 to 30,000, right? So in verse 7... 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. The them referring to the multitudes that were coming. And then one of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. In number, about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and when he gave thanks, he distributed. There's that imperfective. He's continuing to give to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as what? As much as they wanted. They were fed well. So when they were full, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, 
gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This truly, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. <clears throat> Verse 26 of John 6. Now I'm just going to take portions of God's word and stitch them together so that I can show you what I'm driving at here. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. 29 through 30. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you what? Here's the work of God. How many of you want to do the work of God? Here it is right here. Believe in him whom he sent. Who's him referring to? Jesus Christ. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers, and then here, here they are, they're like, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, in the desert. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what's the big deal there? Was that miraculous? Yes, it was. How many people were there in the wilderness? They say four to seven million. Not only that, how many years? Forty years. So our fathers ate the manna in the desert for 40 years. All seven million. What sign can you show us? Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has what? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Then you have everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live for how long? Forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. that sound confusing? It's my flesh. Let's continue. Therefore, many of his... What? What's the word here? Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? What is he talking about? Eating his flesh. That's cannibalism. So his disciples, many of them, said, this is hard. This Bible class is hard. I don't get it. So you can see part of discipleship includes studying and trying to sift through the truth. Jesus said, just taught this. Unless you... I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live. The bread that I shall give is right here. 
my flesh which caused the disciples, many of them, to say, this class is too hard, I don't get it. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. I'm speaking spiritual things. But there are some of you who do not what? Some of the who? Please notice this. I'm I'm color-coded this for a reason. So, many of his disciples said this is a hard saying. Verse 60. But there are some of you who do not. And what happens if you believe? What do you get? Everlasting life. How do we know that? That's, isn't that what he said here? Where is it? He who believes in me has everlasting life. John 6.47 When you go up to back to John 6.60 Many of his disciples said this is hard. And then he said, well, verse 64 There are some of you here of the many who do not believe. So some of you do not even have everlasting life. You're not even saved. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would ultimately betray him. From that time, many of what? What's the word here again? Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. What? I thought if you're a true disciple, you'll always follow Jesus. Look what it says. Let's let's let me show you what um, the, the passage says and includes the his elite. Jesus said to the twelve, "Do you also want to what?" Very clear now, right? That you can't mistake this. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Many of his disciples, that's a second category distinct from the twelve. Many from that time, many of that, many that time, uh, from that time, many of his disciples, plural, went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, he said, you all, you guys want to go away too? Everyone else is abandoning ship. Do you guys want to leave? And who was he talking to? The twelve. These were the elite. The best of the best. Who walked with Jesus for three and a half years. Do you all want to go too? They're all leaving. You guys want to leave? But Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Darren, can you read John 20, 30 and 31 please? John, yeah, 30 and and 31. Nice and loud. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. By believing you can have life in His name. That's the purpose statement of John itself. And look what it says here. Look what Peter answered. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They have everlasting life. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. Uh Uh-oh, who's that? Judas Iscariot. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. What's my point? Three weeks ago, I had pointed out that Judas was not saved. Because when you look in John chapter 13, Jesus specifically said, all of you are clean except one, referring to Judas. You see in John chapter 13 that Satan enters into him. You see here in John 6, 71, that he would be betray Jesus and Jesus himself calls him the devil. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And within you, one of you is the devil. And he specifically says he spoke of Judas Iscariot. Link that back to John chapter 13. One of you is not clean. Satan enters into Judas Iscariot. You now have Judas as a disciple, one of the twelve, who Jesus said in verse 67, Do you also want to go away? His elite consisting of 11 who were clean and one who was of the devil. Right here. It takes, we really have to concentrate and see John 6 closely because you have a groups of people. That's why I said many of the disciples walked with him no more, starting with verse 60, right? Therefore, many of his disciples When they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. So at the moment, the doctrine or the teaching got difficult, they what? They walked away. They said, I'm not going to national capital anymore. It's too hard. Freddie is confusing. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. This is a hard saying. But Jesus knew in himself doctrine of omniscience right there in verse 61. Jesus knew in himself His deity displayed in 61 in a subtle manner. He knew that his disciples complained about this. Complained about what? The teaching that about his flesh. He is the bread of life. 
So he says, well, look, if you're having a hard time with that teaching, what then if I should, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? If you can't handle the doctrine of the living bread, what I'm teaching you now, well, how in the world are you going to handle when I ascend to where I was before? You're really going to be having a hard time. Notice that he, he adds in verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? You're having difficulty with this kernel of teaching right now. What more when I leave and ascend to be with the Father? You're going to have a really hard time. So you can see that the progressiveness of doctrine or teaching can sometimes be very difficult. But that's part of discipleship. Staying in the race. Staying in. Keep on keeping on in. Keep pushing. Keep striving. Let's see. Well, we're going to have to... Um, I'm going to stop here to be sensitive to the time because I think we're going to have... Um, I'm going to recognize uh, Art. He's going to share something with us and give us an update with the ministry that he's involved with. So for now, let's just close. We're going to stop here in John 6.61 and then we're going to push through and I'm going to show you some more with regards to the chart with con- contrasting salvation and discipleship. And I hope this morning you were able to pick up a few nuggets of truth. But for now, let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll have our last song. And uh, let's pray. Father, thank you as always for giving us this opportunity to gather together as a church family. We recognize, Father, that we sometimes are failing when it comes to loving the brethren as we should. We were just strongly reminded that we are to love one another as you have loved us. By this, all will know that we are your disciples when we have love for one another. So help us, Father, to be cognizant of this fact and this command so that we might live it out in public when we're together, that you would be honored and glorified because it gives us the opportunity to cooperate with your word and to apply it, not just being hearers of the word, but doers of the word, thus giving you the honor and glory that rightfully belongs to you and you alone. We ask and pray all of these things through Christ's matchless name. Amen.